My name is Jacob Hall and I am the Director of Operations and I am excited to be here, excited to uh, get the opportunity to share with you something that God's been laying on my heart. Uh, if we are in the middle of our uh, the Gospel According To series. This is a series where we are taking pop culture references, things like movies and TV shows, and we are breaking it down to find spiritual truths in that. And why do we want to do that? Well, it's because Jesus did it in a way, right? Jesus used parables. If you don't know, a parable quite literally is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So when Jesus was meeting with the people of his time, he used pop cultural references such as farming and fishing. Uh, life was a lot more boring back then, but now we're going to use TV shows and movies to to kind of make these spiritual truths that sometimes seem bigger than we could ever imagine and make them simple and uh, easy to digest, if you will. Uh, Pastor Kevin kicked off. We talked about uh, kindness with uh, um, Coach Ted Lasso and then moved into Mr. Beast and his generosity. And last week, Chris showed expertly how we can find hope in the darkness through the new Obi-Wan series. Uh, you'll remember Chris last week talked about how he was leading up to the series. He had so many different directions. He could preach on this sermon series for the entirety of his life, right? He, he said what he was going to do early on, and then he had four to 12 different sermons ready to go for Sunday in case one fell through, right? And I will say that this is the exact opposite of me. I, uh, nothing has made me feel more culturally irrelevant than this sermon series. I, I don't watch a lot of movies. I don't watch a lot of TV shows. I do watch YouTube videos, like at night when I'm like doing the dishes, I like to prop up the phone and watch it, but I watch weird stuff. I mean, I watch like uh, someone starting an ant colony from a single queen in, like ant and then watching it as it grows and like no one wants to do that or maybe I'll watch somebody reacting to TLC content and maybe TLC content itself would be a great gospel according to series but I didn't want to offend anyone so I stayed away from that so I do love audiobooks so uh, I was like well maybe I could do an audiobook that I've recently listened to and uh, I've been listening to this incredible series from the late 90s early 2000 Animorphs uh, in case you don't know, it's about kids who turn into animals to fight an alien invasion. But when they made the reference of like the highest amount of speed you could get on the internet was like 14 kilobytes per second, I realized this is way culturally irrelevant. So I skipped that as well. Uh, I knew I would have to dive into some new IP. So I had to watch or consume something for this sermon series explicitly. So I did that, and this is what we jumped into. What we're going to be talking about is a, is a Netflix exclusive series called The Queen's Gambit. It's a series I thought was about chess and quickly found out I was wrong, right? Uh, chess is there, but there's much deeper stuff to this. Uh, now, I have to be honest. I've never watched The Queen's Gambit. Uh, the first time I saw anything to do with it was when they sent the trailer for my approval. Uh, I did read the audiobook. I just wanted to read the audiobook. I felt like I could escape into it better, uh, but I did read the audiobook, and that shouldn't matter for the most part. The stories are really similar. I watched plenty of YouTube videos to make sure I knew the differences, but there are some subtle differences about uh, maybe some of their uh, intentions and motivations. So if, if you've watched the series and say like, oh, this feels a little different, it's probably because the book was better and I read that, but the series seems to be a pretty accurate uh, depiction. 
you won't lose anything. I just couldn't lie to you and pretend I watched it when I didn't. But I did listen to it, and it's great. So, hey, we are there. So in case you don't know, The Queen's Gambit is about chess. But more importantly, it's about a girl named Beth Harmon. Uh, when we first meet Beth Harmon, she's an eight-year-old girl who has just lost her mother in a car accident and is now left as an orphan living in the Minthun house a Christian orphanage in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. I'd had no idea, but this is about Kentucky. So it was like, oh, that's cool. Um, so, but this is set in the 1960s, okay? So USSR is around that kind of time period, right? So it's this story where she is there. Uh, now, the show attributes a lot of the backstory to the parents. You saw there, she was descending into madness or whatever. That is not present in the book, right? Uh, her parents are mentioned, but the biggest thing they did was stop living, right? That's the biggest impact. Uh, they seem to be relatively decent people, maybe a bit uncouth, but they were, uh, her father was not around for as long as she could remember, and her mother died when she was eight. But I think the real uh, damage, so to speak, for her, or for Beth, was done at the orphanage itself, which seems to get a little bit of a pass in the, in the show comparatively. But uh, the orphanage, it wasn't a good time for her. Uh, again, she was lost without her parents. She was alone, and she had a hard time making friends. In fact, she only really had one friend named Jolene and that relationship was as combative as it was close. So that's where we find Beth is in this uh, extreme feeling of loneliness uh, as she is kind of going about her life here. Now, one thing that is true of both the book and the show is that while at the Minthune house, all the children are given twice a day a tranquilizer. Right, a little green tranquilizer because as the director says, it, it's given to even their dispositions. The 60s was a wild time, but, um, and, and Beth is actually glad of these pills because as, as she says, they, they loosen up something deep inside her, right? Uh, and, she, and over time, she realizes that if she keeps the pills underneath her tongue and drinks the water that she's supposed to drink, she can start to build them up. And that allows her at night where she struggles with sleep that she's able to take two pills to knock, you know, to help her to escape the, the feelings inside of her and go to sleep. And uh, of course, typically when you start doing that, you don't stop at two. And over time, she starts to realize the more I save up, the bigger effect I get. So you see this eight-year-old girl learning how to, uh, to manage her drug addiction. Uh, and even though she has as much internal struggles and even though she has this budding uh, drug addiction, you find out that she's actually an intelligent, incredibly brilliant girl. She's top of her class in all of her studies. And as a reward, she gets to do what every kid wants to do. She gets to go to the basement and clap erasers together to clean them. Uh, so when you're top of your class in the 60s, that's what you get. You get to clap erasers. And uh, while she's down in this dark, creepy basement, she sees the nice janitor. And when I mean nice, I don't mean actually nice. Just because he works in an orphanage does not mean he likes kids, right? So this, not, this old paunched belly man named Mr. Scheibel is down there, and she sees him sitting at a table with a, a cloth, like a piece of felt and little plastic pieces. And she's confused about what it is and eventually asks what it is and finds out it's chess, and it captivates her watching all the pieces as they move. And she asked Mr. Scheibel to teach her, and he's very nice and said, no, get out of, my, get out of here. So shouldn't you be in class or something like that? And, uh, but over time, she was persistent, and she, he starts to teach her the game of chess. And he teaches her in a way that you should never talk to any eight-year-old girl. Um, and, and it's very blunt. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful. But, uh, and the idea, but eventually, we find out that she is a prodigy when it comes to chess. 
She is remarkable. She quickly gets to the point where she's able to defeat him easily. So he invites his friend, who's the high school chess teacher, and she defeats him. And then they, she plays both the teacher and Mr. Scheibel at the same time. To further show how great she is, the chess teacher invites her to a field trip to go to the chess club after school and play against the chess team. There's 12 people, so she's gonna play 12 kids way older than she is at the same time. So 12 kids, and she defeats them easily. All 12 plays 12 simultaneous. She goes from one board to the other, 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 to the other. And I've already lost track. I don't know if I'm at 12, but 12 of those others. And she plays them all at the same time. And I love, this is where the book, you, you get the advantage of seeing inside people's heads. And she was surprised with how bad they were. She said, I knew more in my first game of chess than they know now. And now I'm, I'm not here to brag, but when I was in high school, I was uh, on the chess team, received a varsity letter. I was the fifth chair alternate, easily the top six player in the team. There were six of us, but what matters, what matters is, I can tell you, she knew way more than me in her first game than I ever did as I retired from the team. Uh, but anyways, she is an incredible genius, and that's kind of where the story of Beth Harmon is. She's a once-in-a-generational talent with crippling loneliness and a desperation to be good enough. And all that is being bottled up by a dangerous cocktail of chess and tranquilizers. And all this is only made worse as she gets older and she starts a love affair with alcohol, which as she describes, moves much faster than those tranquilizers. As she becomes better at chess, she becomes the state, the national champion. The tension to use drugs to escape is lessened because what we find is as she learns chess, that chess starts to take the place of that, the feeling that she got in the pills, from the pills. So she would lay in the wake at night not being able to sleep. And at first she was using pills, but when she got chess, she could see the moves. You saw it illustrated in the thing on the bed. She can see them move in and around. So she, she replaces this feeling and she says that the feeling, that release that she only got from the pills, she now gets from chess. So she starts to build up and as she gets better and better, she, re, uh, she, she starts needing the drugs less and less. But the reality is on the other side of that, as she gets higher and higher that does, and plat, starts to plateau in her abilities or starts to feel ungood or loses that, that, uh, that depression, that lack of, uh, that need of escape becomes deeper. So you kind of see that she's continuing to build these two simultaneous realities and she is in a precarious position living on a knife's edge. And as in the inevitability of the story predicts, it all comes crashing down. She goes to a multinational tournament uh, uh, to play against people from all over the world, and she has to play the man, a, a Russian named Borgov. Obviously, this is in the 1960s. The USSR was around. Obviously, tensions between America and Russia at, were at an all-time high. There was not good feelings, but there was this man named Borgov. And she, this is a guy that she read his books to learn how to get better at chess, right? All the magazines, and she's playing out games of grandmasters. This is the best player in the world. She's learning from him, and now she has to play with him. She has to play a man whose country is literally the home of chess, right? America was nothing in the world of chess in the 60s. I didn't know that, but now I do. We were nothing, but the Russians, they were the top of the line. And this guy, Borgov, this Russian who looks a lot prettier in the clips than he did in my brain, uh, but uh, 
he made her feel like the child that she had been running from, that lonely, inadequate child. He is her trauma, her loneliness, and her inadequacies embodied in an emotionless, ruthless Russian. And she is defeated quickly, easily, and decisively. Her response is, nat is what any of us would do. She returns home, stocks up her freezer with TV dinners, stocks her fridge full of eggs, stocks her cabinets full of a case of wine and liquor. And as she says, she has flirted with alcohol for a long time, and it's time she finally gives in. And she does just that. She gives into the pills, she gives into the alcohol, she, and she escapes into a drug and alcohol-filled bender that leaves her nearly death. So there are times where she'll wake up and feel like she can't get to the shower. So she takes another drink, takes another tranquilizer. Um, I want to take a moment and step away from the story, and uh, I'm going to talk about a topic that doesn't often come up in uh, in church a lot, but it, and I didn't know I was until I started reading the book, and I want to talk about drug addiction. And I'll say this, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, it is a huge and complex topic, and I have 30 minutes, right? So I cannot possibly get into every nuance and every, you know, intricacies of it, and I'm going to try my best to stay in my lane. But I think this is a conversation that needs to be had. It's a problem that is on the rise and is one that I believe the church should have a much larger involvement in fixing than it has in the past. There are many opinions and many thoughts about people who struggle with drug addiction, and most of these are formed on assumptions and, in, and antiquated understandings. Oftentimes, people look at people who struggle with drug, drug addiction as less than, or some sort of creature who brought it upon themselves. They are seen as selfish, moronic, and as a plague of society, but I want to make sure that one thing is incredibly clear that people who struggle with drug addiction were made in the image of God. They are loved, and they are adored, and they are people too. They are, um, Jesus came to die for their sins as long as ours, as much as ours. So Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, You see, just at the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone do, die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, this shows us that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all separated from God. But for some reason, in our, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we like to create tier list, right, of where we fit sin. So, and typically what we like to do is put the sins that we struggle with right there at the bottom and then elevate other people's sins to the top. That way we feel better and we feel like we're measuring up better than the other person, which completely defeats the entire purpose of surrendering our life to God. But nonetheless, that's what we do. But Jesus came for each of us from the most wicked to the most righteous and died for each of our sins. We are equal on equal playing field for both of the cost of our sin. So all of our sin is, is the cost is death, but also we are in equal playing fields on the amount of lovish grace that God will give us. So to get into it, so one of the things I've seen a lot of times, especially on social media, which that's a different one in and of itself, but I, I've seen the sentiment 
why is Narcan free while insulin keeps, price of insulin keeps rising, right? This is argument made. And this argument isn't made in the fact of why are not both of these life-saving medications free, right? It is often in a sense, of, in a way that insulin should be free and Narcan should be more expensive. As if one group of people deserve life more than another. It's implied, if not outright said, that people who struggle with drug addiction do it to themselves. It's their fault for taking drugs in the first place. If they were responsible, if they would have avoided those drugs, they wouldn't have this issue. And if they don't want to get themselves fixed up, then they deserve what they get. That is thoughtless, offensive, and unhelpful. It takes no consideration for medical history, for past trauma, or any facts based on drugs, on the drugs themselves or the people using them. And if you don't mind, to illustrate this point, I would like to use a different illness, and let's use the same logic, all right? So since we were talking about insulin, let's talk about diabetes, right? So type 2 diabetes. Everyone knows science has clearly proven the number one risk factor for type 2 diabetes is obesity. So if we use the same logic, what we can draw is the conclusion that someone who is obese and suffering from type 2 diabetes clearly did it to themselves. They could have eaten healthier, they could have done more exercise, they could have avoided the unhealthy foods, and if they don't want to get themselves fixed up and healthy, they deserve what they get. Right? No, absolutely not. That's a completely idiotic thing. That's offensive, it's unthoughtful, it's unhelpful, and it takes no consideration into the medical history for past trauma, for the facts based on what they've eaten or the person eating it, eating it, rather. It, it's insane, but for some reason we treat these medical conditions like they're differences, like they're opposite ends of the spectrum, but it's all the same. And I'm not getting into the medical side of that, right? I was just using that as an illustration. We wouldn't say any of that for diabetes, and I don't think we should do any of that for people who are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. I think the church needs to be a part of the solution. I think society as a whole, but especially the church, needs to take a radically different approach with how we deal with drug addiction. It is a larger and deeper issue than we want to admit, and it seems easier for us as human beings to strip other people of their humanity than to mantle ourselves with the need of being part of their redemption. For me, uh, I always see it a little differently. By it, I mean drug addiction. I'll note, I have never done any kind of drugs. Uh, I don't smoke, and I didn't drink any sort of alcohol until I was in my late 20s. Uh, and I'm not saying this because I am uh, righteous or is because I'm really proud or I'm straight edge or anything like that. I'm telling you that uh, because I recognize at a very young age how dangerous drugs can, and alcohol can be. And I'm not talking about the bad health effects that are taught in D.A.R.E. and MAD and in health class and all those slides. I'm not talking about that. I, I saw they were dangerous because I saw the escape that they offered. A way to numb the pain. A way to escape both the monotony of life and the crushing weight of the world's expectations on me. My favorite movie of all time uh, is Jumanji. And I mean the one with Robin Williams, you know, with the board game, the bad CGI, not the rock, and the beautiful CGI, the old one. Uh, I, I just love it. I love the story. I love, uh, I love the game. But whenever you talk about that, in case you don't know, it's a board game, Jumanji is, and you roll the dice, and then a thing 
pops up and it, it's like a little riddle and you're like, oh, that's cute. And then a lion comes out and tries to eat you, right? And then once you finish the game and get to the end, call out Jumanji, everything goes back to normal. So it's a, it sounds like a blast, right? So whenever it comes up, I always ask people, would you play, right? Like, have you ever thought about it? If you had the game right here in front of you, you know what's going to happen. You roll the dice, you're going to get eaten by mosquitoes and lions. Would you play the game? Most people say, no, that would be dumb. But I always thought, yeah, I would love to play the game. And the reason why is it's right there in the rules. The first part of the rule says this, Jumanji is a game for those who seek to find a way to leave their world behind. To me, it was always a captivating idea because it was an escape from the everyday and the expectations that came with it. It's a game of primal survival at worst, you're going to be eaten by a lion and all your earthly problems are gone, right? At best, you're going to uh, dive deep and grow and learn how to survive, how to adapt, how to strengthen, and your resolve will be better to take on the meaninglessness of life. Problems become a lot smaller when you ran from your, your father figure who is now an evil hunter guy in the jungle, right? And things in real life seem smaller. And to me, drugs always seem to offer that same escape, or rather the illusion of escape. And even as I, a teenager, I saw the emptiness of that escape. Maybe I realized it wasn't really an escape, but it was an escape from one hell to a completely different one. And when I read Beth Harmon's story, I understood her desire for those thoughtless and sleepless, those thoughtless nights, or for the slowed down, simplified life state that drug abuse can offer. I understand the desire of wanting to leave your world behind because I spent a large portion of my life with that same desire. But we must understand that each of us is created in the image of God, and each of us was created to be united with God, but each of us is also born separated from God because of our sin. That doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, if you grew up in the world, or you grew up in some sort of hell on earth. That is still true of you. There's an internal struggling happening inside each of us. On one hand, we crave a unity, a wholeness that comes from only a right relationship with God. And on the other hand, we have a desire and a craving to fill that void with selfish desires. This tension is real, and it can lead to destruction if that balance is not found. If we don't realize that this void is only fillable by Christ, we will try and fill it with things we feel we can control, such as success, money, fame, power, or at worst, we will try to numb and escape the pain through things like drugs, alcohol, food, and Netflix. And as seen it with Beth, she bounces between uh, using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain and trying to fill this void with being the best chess player ever. And as she gets higher and higher in the rankings, the inevitable fall will lead her into a deeper void and in need of a bigger escape. And the story of Beth Harmon is the story of many of us. Granted, most of us are not great chess players, uh, right? Most of us are six-chair alternates and not national champions. And I, luckily, most of us will not fall into such deep drug and alcohol dependency. But I think each of us has a tendency to do the things that I said, which is fill the void of God or to numb the void, right? Numb and escape it. So the question then becomes, what do we do about it? I think the first thing we got to do is we got to understand our reality. We must understand that we are loved by God. 
John 3.16, the verse that Tim Tebow made famous. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I know this is like the Christian verse, right? Because it is. There's a reason it's so popular and so famous. This is the verse. God loves us desperately. He created us to be in unity with him. He created us because he loved us. He loved us so much he couldn't help but create us knowing he, we would be the worst people ever, right? So he loved us so much that he sent his only son. Whether you're a chess grandmaster or truly the scum of society, we are each created in his image and he created us to be for a complete and fulfilling life. However, we are sinful, right? In Romans 3, 23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It continues in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. And this death that this is talking about, the, uh, you know, the wages of sin is death. This death isn't just a physical death. We will all die, but there is a true and real spiritual death, which is that separation from God. It's important to realize that this spiritual separation, this death, if you will, doesn't start when our hearts stop beating here on earth, but is a true and present reality here and now. We are separated from God who loves us here and now, and that separation leads us to unhealthy and dangerous places. But there is hope, and that hope is if we seek Jesus, right? So going back to Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God knew we were separated, but he also knew that we were not going to be able to bridge that separation on our own. If we are left to our own devices, all we are going to do is try to fill that void with success, with power, or with money, or try to numb and escape that ever-crushing reality through things like drugs, alcohol, or whatever else we want to fill it is. But God sent Jesus to live a perfect, sin-free life so, and die on a cross for us to pay that price, to bridge that separation. There was no way to bridge the gap without a perfect human sacrifice. So he sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin and die in our place. And so many times, I think the church and people present Jesus as an escape from eternal suffering into eternal bliss, right? There's these ideas, these cosmic realities. And of course, that's true. But I think the reality is that both the suffering and the bliss start here on earth. It's, a, it's not just a future reality, but a present one as well. And Jesus died for us to have life and to have it abundantly here and now, not just after death, life here and now. He invites us to make a difference in the life of those around us. His sacrifice isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card, but rather it's an invitation for us to, as I say, seek health. Jesus invites us into that abundant life here and now. And surrendering our lives to Jesus isn't a quick fix. I know we wish it was. I wish that when we surrendered our lives, everything magically got better. But I think the reality and the truth is when you surrender your life, everything just starts. Because if you don't surrender your life, you get to bank on just not having to do anything, right? There's always that card. I don't have any obligation to do anything. But when you surrender your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come and invite you to grow. Invite you to get healthy, which the world is really good at not doing either of those things. 
But when you surrender your life, you, it, there is that invitation that we, uh, we are called into. It's a way of life that calls you into action, a way of life that calls you back to how life was supposed to be in the garden prior to our mankind's sin entering the world. Surrendering our lives to Jesus is about seeking health. And when we talk about health, uh, this is kind of like everyone says you should be healthy, but what does that mean, right? There's a lot of things, and I think the church kind of glazes over that. But here at Rock Vineyard, one of our core values is health. It's to be healthy. It's to be a complete person, to be healthy. And one of the first way I want to talk about is mental health, right? Uh, mental health, luckily as a society, we finally started talking about mental health. It used to be something that you suffered too quietly and alone and in the shadows, right? But luckily, even as a society, we have brought that into the forefront and say, hey, do you realize that all of us are broken? That all of us have some sort of childhood trauma that we're dealing with? Or all of us have experienced things in life that have left us broken and incomplete and unable to use our brains the way that they were designed to be made. So I think that is a re reality that we are starting to get better at, but it is also a reality I think God calls us into. I think God calls us into being mentally healthy to deal with things, to not just numb the pain, not just to lock it away, not just to try and glaze over it. Uh, you know, we often will try and build walls or lock things in safe, but I think God breaks down walls and unlocks safes and forces us to deal with it. Because if we just hide behind our past, hide behind these uh, traumas and things like that, we will never get to be the person we were created to be. They will be, that will become part of your identity. But with, through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' sacrifice, there's a way forward a way to health that you would not even believe. Uh, the second way is social health. We see in the Bible, in the beginning, God created Adam and realized it's not good for man to be alone, even before sin entered the world. So he gave Adam Eve, which started a codependent relationship that each of us has created to be a part of. I am the most introverted person you will ever meet, and I don't like people. That's why I really liked Mr. Scheibel. He was my people. I got it. I just want to sit in a dark basement and play chess by myself. It's literally a dream, but I even realize that that is not true, that each of us needs people. We need community. We need people because people keep us honest. It's really easy to lie to yourself when you're in the basement thinking you're a grandmaster, but you sit down to play chess against another person, you realize you're still the six-chair alternate, right? So you're, you're the guy... So it's that reality. I think we are called to community. We are called to uh, come together because when you come together, you hold each other accountable. When you come together, you carry one another's burdens. And I think true life, true health, true happiness is found when you rub shoulders and butt heads with other people. It's work and it's, it takes uh, energy, but it is how I think life and growth will truly happen. And the third thing is physical health. All right, I'm going to, let's just get a few things out of the way. I am by no means the beacon of peak physical health. I understand that, okay? I get it. But I think we should still talk about it, right? I think it's still really important uh, that we talk about it because here's the reality that I think we can all agree with. When you eat garbage, you feel like garbage, right? Has anyone eaten too much or you eaten too much of McDonald's or anything and you've, where did that accent come from? Um, and it, you feel the effects of that. If you don't take care of your body, you will feel like garbage. If you don't move, moving hurts, right? There's these realities. And it, I get 
we live in America, right? America, if it, it says it stands for red, white, and blue, but I think it stands for sugar, carbs, and saturated fats because they are everywhere and they're easy to eat and they're cheaper than eating healthy stuff, right? And we all know, let's be honest, Pop-Tarts are way better than apples. French fries? destroy zucchini, right? We know that. Uh, it's just a present and true reality. Now, I'm not going to get up here and preach at you about eating healthy and exercising. You know you need to. I know that because Elmo told you when you were a kid, and every time you go, four year, every four years when you go to get those weird moles checked out by your doctor, he tells you you got to be eating healthy as well, right? So we all know that we should be eating and taking care of our bodies. But I want to challenge you in something. Because I think God is inviting us into improving our physical health. Did you know our mental, spiritual, social health are all directly impacted by our physical health? Think about it. If you don't sleep at night, you only get four hours of sleep, and then you have to deal with the kids, you're a jerk. If you're hangry because you didn't eat lunch, or you're eating nothing but crap and your stomach hurts, you're a jerk right? The reality is our physical bodies have an effect on how we interact with other people. When you feel like junk, you are a jerk. And so many, and I think that's so true. But let me ask you, have you ever paused and asked God, God, what should I do about my physical health? I know this is to be true of some people. I have at, we ask people to be a part of the prayer team, and they say, let me pray about it. And they pray about it for four years to decide whether or not they want to be on the prayer team. But when it comes to eating a cheeseburger, we don't even pause four seconds before we start pounding that thing down, right? Is that, but I think there's something wrong about that. I think there's something off about that. And I think there is a, an opportunity that we have to return to a way where we ask God, God, what is it that you desire of my physical health? It sounds so weird. It sounds so foreign. It sounds so awkward. And it feels too intimate to ask God to help me with my physical health. Now, I think the church needs to step up in this. We, the church is really good at praying for people when their wheels fall off, right? Someone tears a ligament in their shoulder, their leg falls apart, or we're going to be there. We're going to pray for you. We're going to heal you. But we don't stop and pray for people before they are you know, in a pile in a heap, right? And I wonder if there may be a different route. Maybe there's a different way that we can be involved in the physical health of our community right? How can the church be a bigger impact on the physical health? I don't think seeing Jesus is just about uh, the spiritual side, if you will. I think this is summed up beautifully in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 19. Do you not know that these bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you and who have received, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." This verse is oftentimes used to talk about purity, to talk about tattoos, and used to talk about, you know, not doing drugs and alcohol. But I think that's not, it's not a what not to do. It's an invitation into doing something different, to seek out, uh, out what God has called us to by partnering with the Holy Spirit uh, to, to, to do what God has created us to do. The healthier we are, the more we care for our bodies, our minds, our souls, the greater impact we can have on other people. Um, obviously, now there's a caveat here. Obviously, all those health that we talked about, mental, social, and uh, physical, there are all things outside of our control, right? We can't control if our parents are going to abuse us as children, right? We can't uh, 
we can't um, control whether or not someone's going to lie to us and hurt us and break community. We can't control if we're going to get hit by a car when we are driving out there, because I don't know if you ever think about this. Try not to, but I'm going to put it in your brain. The most dangerous thing about driving a car isn't that you know how to drive a car. It's that other people know how to drive cars or think they know how to drive cars and think they can text and drive or eat and drive or drink and drive. It's a nightmare out there. But there are things that we can't control. But I think oftentimes we use those things we can't control to get us out of the things that we can control. And I think God is inviting us into taking a look at things differently. And looking at how uh, we can be healthier how we could care for our minds, our souls, and our bodies. And the fact that if we find a way to find that health, that that's going to better uh, improve the way we can impact other people's lives. So I know what you're wondering. How does the Queen's Gambit ends? What is the story of Beth Harmon? It's a great one, and I really suggest that you, you read or watch the series because I'm not going to tell you. Because why I care, and I think the story of Beth Harmon is an incredible story, I care far more about the story of you, the story of us, because each of us are seeking the same thing she was, healing from our past, fulfillment of our being validated, having our own purpose, being good enough. These are all things that are true of us that we all desire. And I'm here today, hopefully to show you that the answer is that we seek Jesus, because in his sacrifice, there is life. In the healing that Jesus offers you, there is life. We have an invitation into a life that is so far outside of what we uh, could even comprehend. And I think oftentimes we present the, the, the way of Christ, right? The Christian lifestyle as this beautiful and wonderful thing where all your problems go away. And we all know that's crazy. I don't know where you get those ideas. They're not in the Bible, Right? It seems Jesus offers us persecution. He offers us dying to ourselves. He offering uh, elevating other people above ourselves. But somehow we have twisted that in a lot of ways. But I think God is calling us back to a healthier lifestyle, to deal with the things that are leading us. Because we each and every one of us have that void inside of us that only Christ can fill, only unity with God can fill. And it's time we stop trying to fill it with things like power, money, success, right? We use our jobs or our families to try and elevate them and place them in the God part of your heart. But they will all fall short because they're all based on us and not him. Or at worst, worse than that, sometimes we will try anything and everything to escape. And yes, I talked about drugs and alcohol. That's one way. But I think there are a lot of other ways we try to avoid the realities of our deepest desires. That's by Again, the internet, Netflix, binge eating, there's so many things. But this is the tension we live in, and I think it's time that we, uh, we step out of that. So, hey, we are going to go back into a time of worship uh, here and a time of prayer. Uh, someone will be here to pray. If you need prayer, trust me, they're around. Uh, maybe, yeah, there we go. We got one coming. There's going to be other. They're around. And, hey, if you need someone, just talk to your neighbor and say, hey, can you pray for me, right? They all went through the prayer training that happened last month. They're all, they're all experts. If not, there's a Holy Spirit who will intercede. But uh, as, I, as we end, let, uh, we just want to say, come Holy Spirit. I think today is about an invitation. 
uh, an invitation back to God. Normally, I, I, I like to uh, write out everything I'm going to say during the, uh, the ministry time because, you know, you want to be prepared. But uh, I just had that. Today is about an invitation. I think God is inviting us to stop trying to fill that void. That we've been going, we've been trying, we've been pursuing that next uh, promotion, we've been pursuing that next, uh, that next thing that's going to make us feel good. I mean, the last seven things didn't fit, make us feel good, but that next thing, right, is going to make us feel good. And I, th- I, think, I think it's time to stop, start asking God, what is it that you created me to be? And I think, on the other hand, we have... We have to stop trying to fill this void with things that are going to fall short. If you're like me, before I knew Christ, it's probably a lot more destructive than, uh, than, than helpful. So uh, as we move into this time, we have uh, some wonderful prayer people up here. And like I said, your neighbors will pray for you too. But I want to invite you. Because I think God is saying there's an invitation to come back that you're not too far gone, that you're not too messed up, that you're not. God wants you to know that you are good enough and that you have what it takes. And if you don't believe me, come up here for prayer. He'll show up. So as we turn back over to worship, we got a few more songs uh, and we'll keep praying at any time. Feel free to come up for prayer. Take up someone in the back. Talk to your neighbor. But I really feel today is a day to move forward into the reality of being the person you were created to be. Let me pray real fast. God, we just say, come Holy Spirit. God, we don't come to church because we have to. We don't come to church because we want to be a part of it. We, We come to church because you've invited us to be. God, I want to be a community that can be healthy. I want to be a community that can be honest and talk about our shortcomings, talk about the church struggles, the difficulties, God. And God, I I pray that people realize that their struggles, their difficulties, their failures, their shortcomings, it's not their fault. That we live in a world that is hard and continually dragging us into destruction, God, but we want to pray release. We speak against the kingdom of darkness and we just say, get out of here. That these are the people of God. That each one of us in this room was created in the image of God and is loved by God and is cared for by God. And God, I know you are inviting people into a different relationship. A different relationship with food, a different relationship with alcohol, a different relationship with their friends, their family, and complete strangers, God. But more importantly, a different relationship with you. God, let today be the day where we quit pretending everything's okay and start seeking the healing that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. Not just a spiritual, but truly a physical healing, God. Just because this is how we've always done it doesn't mean we need to keep doing that. So we just say one more time, come Holy Spirit.